Is it rolling, Bob? Talking Dylan. He's your host, Lucas Hare. He's your host, Kerry Shale. But he's our special guest, talking to us from his New York studio, musician and journalist, Jeff Slate. Me, I'm still on the road, heading for another joint. We always did feel the same. We just saw it from a different point of view, Tangle Up in Blue. Hey, Jeff. Hey. Um, thank you for that. Uh, so why did you choose that? We always start our show with a, a Dylan quote. Any particular uh, meaning for you? Well, I've lived with that music now for, <laughs> you know, between God, yeah. working on the box set and, and doing promotion for it. I've lived with the music and kind of rediscovered it and fell in love with it again. Um, I thought I'd get sick of it and I didn't. <laughs> um, th- this is the funny thing about that box set. It, you know, it's only 10 ish songs. There's a couple extra songs, but. And so you think, you know, you're going to hear Tangle Up and whatever, eight takes or whatever it is on the box, hear them over and over and over, talk about them over and over and over, and you're going to get sick of them. And mm. I, I haven't. I've actually really fallen in love with them completely again. And I've performed it a few times for special events and things I've done. And it's it never ceases to amaze me how fantastic it is. And also... Whenever I get to that line, I kind of think about, you know, I first learned to play that song as I write about in the early... In the liner notes. Na- yeah, in the liner notes um, in the early 90s. You know, then didn't for a very long time because it's a really... It's hard to, to do those songs and kind of make them your own. And also there there's always somebody in the audience who comes up to you afterwards and corrects you. Or, so I avoid them, but that, the, the, that line in particular speaks to me because it reminds me, every time I'm standing on the stage and I'm singing those songs, I, it's like I think of Bob. He's this guy who, and, and I can't believe I'm doing that too and making money. People pay me to do this. You know, it's kind of an amazing, cool. an amazing thing. Where, where are you from? I don't know um, your background. I was born in Connecticut, raised mm-hmm. there, uh, grew up in a small town sort of near Mystic, Connecticut. I had older brothers and sisters and a brother-in-law who were all kind of artistically inclined, and I inherited their record collections. And my brother-in-law in particular, he was a jazz session musician and had a, a pretty amazing record collection, pretty amazing taste. He and my sister lived in New York City, and I would visit them from a really young age and fell in love with New York City. But he also would take me to see music, mainly jazz, because that was his world. But, you know, we went to see a lot of things. And he introduced me to Bob and Hendrix and the deeper Beatle cuts that I didn't know because I was a kid listening to Yellow Submarine or, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my sister took me to see The Clash in 1981 and... You know, I got to see the Kinks and a bunch of people in sort of the late 70s and early 80s that really formed my taste and my aesthetic and ethos and all these other things. And I, I, he also gave me The Great White Wonder. So that was, you know, I didn't know that wasn't an album. You know, I just thought it was like, <laughs> didn't sound very good. You know, <laughs> it's like, I, you know, I, I, so yeah, I mean, I had the white album and I had the great white wonder. And I, you know, I remember those being next to each other in my record collection. So anyway, I grew up there and that's how I kind of formed this connection to music because I was just a kid in suburbia 
who was really obsessed with trying to carve out a path as a creative person in a world that was very vanilla. Uh, so mm. sort of the minute I could get out of there, I, I did and hightailed it for New York City and kind of never looked back, really. Was there a light bulb moment for, for Dylan particularly? Do you remember when you, when you heard him and thought, wow? Yeah, I'm trying to remember the record. It was either Freewheeling or Blonde on Blonde. I inherited that kind of early 60s, you know, like bringing it all back home, Blonde on Blonde, Freewheeling, yeah. another another side. I'm trying to think what else I got. There were a couple of other ones, Nashville Skyline, John Wesley Hart, stuff that didn't move me as much at that point in my life. But I remember, I remember Blonde on Blonde being something that at, when I was, I don't know, 11 or 12 or 13, whatever it was, and everybody was listening to Kiss, was pretty, <laughs> was, was pretty punk rock, you know? It was, it was really mm, sure. different. And it was different than anything else I was listening to, which was like the Who and the Small Faces and the Kinks and stuff, the Jam and the Clash, certainly. And I remember listening to it with headphones, you know, in my room, alone, as, as you know, we all kind of experienced that as a singular thing as much as we do as something we do with other people. And it was it was pretty, you know, I, I know you folks hate to use this word over there, but it was an, it was awesome. And I don't mean it in the sense of, you know... I the mean modern it, sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean it as I was awestruck. You know, Awe-inspired. And, yeah, yeah. awe-inspired. Yeah. I mean, it was like, this was... I love John Lennon. I You know, I love Joe Strummer. I think their words are fantastic. But this was like another level of songwriting that nobody else was doing, even when they tried. He came, he came around with the Heartbreakers in the 80s. And, you know, it was like Tom Petty and Bob Dylan at Madison Square Garden. I was here in New York City and I got two tickets. They were pretty expensive. I think it was like 50 bucks each, maybe, at the time. At the time, mm. it was pretty pricey. Ooh, and, yeah. and I could not get anybody to go with me. <laughs> Nobody. The, Tom was at kind of a lowish, relatively speaking, and Bob was kind of. It's certainly for like twenty-year-old kids, you know, kind of meh. And so yeah. I ended up scalping it out front of the garden and going, sitting next to a guy that I had sold it to, um, and you know, I didn't know what to expect. My brother had or I guess it was my brother-in-law had seen him on the gospel tour. He had seen him a few times and then saw him on the gospel tour and was like, ah, I'm not going to see Bob again. You know, it had really kind of lost interest. And so I, you know, I thought, oh, well, it might not be all that great. You know, I don't remember the sequence of the show, but I remember there was a section where he played by himself. And I don't remember if there was anybody else in the room because it was like... Mm -hmm. Again, it was this awesome experience. It, I was completely starstruck by the fact that here was Bob Dylan singing these songs. It's really an art to be able to hold 20,000 people in the palm of your hand, but also that these weren't just, you know, all due respect to Jackson Brown or some of these other guys who are, who are these great songwriters. This mm. was like a whole other thing. Or Tom, you know, or, or Petty, who's, you know, mm. a pretty amazing songwriter. In his own right, this was like, whoa, what the fuck is going on here? And I, and so then I dug back into the albums and CDs and, you know, whatever else I had kind of, I, I even had some bootlegs at that point on cassette. Mm. Um, and then it became 
quickly became an obsession because I was songwriting at a pretty good clip at that point. And then when I got serious about it in the 90s and I had the conversation with, with Pete Townsend that I recount in, in the liner notes, mm-hmm. it became this sort of challenge. I quickly realized it was an unattainable thing to reach that level of songwriting. But it's cool to be aspirational and it's cool to see, you know, he's he's worn so many hats. He's had so many guises. It's a role model, if only just to try to reinvent yourself every time you sit down to write a song or perform a song. So I think that, you know, there are a lot of lessons to be learned. And I think that was that was how I came to Bob. And you did. You've written an awful lot about Bob before you did the line notes <laughs> yeah. for more blood, more tracks. I mean, what was the first Bob Dylan article journalism that you did? Do you remember? I don't. Um, I'm sure I wrote about him. You know, I had a column for the defunct examiner.com. I'm sure I wrote a few things that are probably on Rock's Back Pages now, um, archived on Rock's Back Pages. The first thing where I, I wrote something that got any attention was I reviewed um, another self-portrait for Guitar World, and it it got picked up in the wiki article. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people came to it and you get fan mail and hate mail and all the usual things that, you know, there's a lot, you know, whenever you do anything about Bob, you get opinion, as you know. Yeah, sure. <clears throat> and what, what did you say that was controversial, do you think, uh, about Shit, that, I don't know. If, that, if like, you just say you liked well, you it, just it's never controversial. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean... <laughs> yeah, true, true. <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter what you say because there's always somebody with a contrary opinion, if only to be contrary. And that that's part of what I love about Bob, is the people who, the people who come to him, by and large, are, are pretty smart people. You know, I mean, you always meet people who are just casual fans and who don't know he toured with Tom Petty or don't, don't know anything, really. They just know him as kind of a pop culture figure. But, you know, his, his fans are a pretty smart bunch. And I always, I always enjoy even people who completely disagree with me or, you know, correct things that they think they're right about, whether or not they are or not. <laughs> um, I love it. I love that sparring. I think that's what makes it so much fun. It's also nice. It makes you feel good that there are other people out there who are so obsessive that it makes you mm. feel like not a complete freak. <laughs> I suppose that the bootleg series compilers must have to stay ahead of the game in that so many fans are out there and they think they've heard it all and they think, oh yeah, well there's that version of Born in Time that hasn't been released and all, whatever. And then something like another self-portrait comes along and pretty sorrow. I'm, I don't think anyone had, had heard of that before no. it, it re- was released. And suddenly it's one of the greatest vocal performances he's ever given. And it's astonishing to me what's, what is in the archives that, that the fans have no idea about. And I suppose you must have heard or heard rumour of, of a lot more of these than, than most of us. You know, pretty quickly after I did that review, I came to the attention of, you know, Sony liked it. You know, it's always nice when you give a good review and it gets some attention. And so I came to the attention of his office and I got invited for coffee. And that really was kind of a get to know you meeting. You know, again, part of it is... I've had this experience with other artists. I mean, I think Townsend is the best example, but Ringo's a good example. Petty was a good example. That I I came to their attention or I got to know them and I wasn't 
starstruck. I'm not easily, I will say I don't like this as much as I will be effusive about the things I do like. And I think that's rare in their world. And I think, I mean, I'm not shitty about it or anything. I just, you know, I have an opinion and I'm not shy. But I also come to it with a sense of the history and some knowledge about what I'm talking about and, and so forth. And so, you know, I just hit it off with the people who were involved. So then it, it becomes, you know, they're playing you what's coming next year or in two years or whatever. And, and some of it comes to pass and some of it doesn't. So, yeah, I've gotten to hear, and I've been out to the archive in Tulsa, which is just an amazing experience. And, I bet, yeah. um, and they have a lot of stuff there that, you know, is not available anywhere that you can just sort of peruse. And so, yeah, I've, I've, I've heard a lot, he, and, and, I, a and I've, I've, I've yeah. lost track. I hate to say this, be, and people will go, what do you mean you don't know the exact date and place? You know, it's like I've lost track a little bit of what's available and what's not available commercially because a lot of it I have on bootleg or I've heard in other people's collections on bootleg or I've heard it at the office or it's part of the bootleg series or I've heard it in Tulsa. So it all becomes this kind of Bob stew that I have in, in my brain kind of uh, swirling around. So it, it, it's not that I've really forgotten, but I have to think for a second what's out there and what isn't. Who, uh, this is just out of the blue, who came up with the title More Blood, More Tracks? Bob. Okay, I just wondered. Yeah. Uh, he comes up with all the titles then. He comes up with all the the ideas for the album covers. That's my understanding. Yeah, I mean, he works with Jeff Gans um, pretty closely on the artwork. He, you know, cares what it what it looks like. Whether you like it or not, Bob likes it. And I think that's kind of cool. <laughs> you know, he's got a story to tell even when... I mean, I don't think... You know, he's not obviously as involved in the bootleg series as he would be in a new album of new material. But he does care about how it's presented. So I think the way it came to pass after Biograph was it was presented to him that there can be kind of this alternate universe Bob that you don't ever have to acknowledge (laughs) in interviews or in the press that will help us tell this story of, you know, your catalog without doing endless reissues of the same things. How do you feel about that? And I think Mm -hmm. as long as the quality control is high, which obviously is, he's been fine with it. And I think it's Bob and the Beatles... You know, I I say this all the time in interviews, but, you know, 100 or 200 years from now, when history, which is cruel to the also-rans, you know, it will be from the late 20th century, Bob and the Beatles and a bunch of other people. And I think, you know, he has the long view of how that's going to be seen and that people are going to want to, you know, it's not just going to be people who are going to be going to the archive, digging through stuff the way they do with, you know, Faulkner or Shakespeare or Hemingway or whoever it is. Mm -hmm. You know, there's going to be the more casual listener who will want to get a sense of who this guy was in the 20th century Furman beyond just the times era changing or, you know, like a Rolling Stone. And so I think this is helping to tell the story without him having to Mm -hmm. lift a finger. (laughs) <laughs> so it's your understanding that, that, I mean, to get specific, on same More Blood, More Tracks, I think there's an organ part on Idiot Wind, which is replacing the version that was on the acetate. These are all creative decisions that come, as far as you know, from Dylan himself, are they? No. No, no, no. 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 Not the music. N- n- well, 
I know he hears them, and I know he sometimes has opinions. Um, Steve Berkowitz, this is a publicly known story, so I can tell it. Steve Berkowitz yeah. had a great story about there was a on another self-portrait where there was a long version. I, I want to say it was Bloomfield playing, and it just went on and on and on. And so he edited it. You know, mainly because they were doing vinyl, but also because it went on and on and on. It was like seven minutes, so he made it, you know, four and a half or five. And he was at the studio and he got a call from Bob. Bob had heard it and Bob was like, where's that solo? Why'd you, why'd you edit it? You know, and, and, and he goes, well, it, you know, it went on and, and yeah, but it's great. And I, I want to hear the whole thing. So, you know, he does have some opinion about it, but I don't, I, you know, <clears throat> I don't know. I, I'm not privy to those conversations and I wouldn't no, sure. presume to know what goes on behind the scenes. Mm. But, uh, you know, he, he, I, I think he cares. And I think that's what's cool about it. It's also different than, you know, I've worked on Beatles projects and I've worked on Dylan projects. And I think it's it's very different when you have a single artist who can say yes or no, as opposed to four individuals plus their managers and accountants and lawyers and, you know, whatever, who have a say. I mean, the, the, the creative team involved in Dylan's releases it's a very, very, very small group. There was a point in the gestation of More Blood, More Tracks where there was probably, I'm just sort of mentally counting, there's probably like six of us who had heard it. And that doesn't include the record company at that point. So I think that's really kind of cool and interesting. And, and all the decisions were made at that level. Hmm. I guess we've reached peak kind of reflective nostalgia period, given that the, the 50 years, I was hmm. working out this the other day, I mean, obviously with the Beatles ongoing reissues and remasters and remixing and with the, the bootleg series as well, I was thinking to myself that here we are in that time of recording early 2019. And I realized that in the first two months of 1969, we saw the recording of From Elvis in Memphis, which is one of my yeah, favorites, yeah, Nashville sure. Skyline, <clears throat> Let yep. It Be, yep. and Johnny Cash at San Quentin, just to name just to name a few in, in, in eight weeks you know and the the concentration of material that celebrates a birthday in 19 from 1969 to 2019 and beyond is huge isn't it i mean we're going to see so many repackagings not just of dylan's stuff but but so much stuff in the next few years yes and no i mean i think i think one of the lessons that was learned in 2018 is that physical product sadly is dead you know, so you got a lot of box sets and very, very, very few of them sold in meaningful numbers. So while I really enjoyed the music from Big Pink box set, I, th I think the addition, you know, the, the run of that box was only 35,000 to begin with. And I think there's still plenty. Now, a lot of band fans had all that material. They didn't really, they preferred the original 5-1 from 10 years ago. You know, whatever it was, there were a lot of reasons yeah. that conspired against that. Um, but I do, you know, I think we've reached a point, you know, there were, set, put it this way, there were several box sets that I was lined up to do liner notes for this year from, mm. you know, major artists, not <laughs> Bob Dylan or the Beatles level, but, you know, just below them, let's say. Yeah. And one is sort of probably maybe going to happen. And the other is, ooh, we're going to wait and see. Mm. Um, and huh. these are, you know, these are on Sony or BMG or, you know, sort of big mm. labels, big projects. Now, I think there will always be, there will always be more boutique 
projects, you know, Craft is doing a lot through Concord and Stacks, and you know they have a bunch of projects that are that are in the pipeline because they mm. do them in a, you know, they, like I said, they're they're more bespoke. But um, and I think you will still get stuff from the Beatles and and Dylan. I know there's a lot of things in the pipeline, but I think the the amount you're going to get. And I, I think it's less than maybe you're hoping we're going to get. I, yeah, I think sure. eventually those things will find their way into, you know, the you'll be able to hear them, but I just don't think it will be maybe the way you want to, you want to physically hold them and read a book and, you know. Well, that's my next question. I mean, I've recently got the Neil Young Archives app on my phone and I've, yeah. I've, I've subscribed to that, you know, oh. and I, I go on the Bruce Springsteen website and I, I, I buy CDs of obscure shows and I'm thinking, is, is that where the Dylan archive could go? I mean, given the fact that there's this huge amount of stuff in Tulsa, that we are seeing a downturn in interest in physical product, is it just going to remain there? Do you think it could exist on a platform like that? Well, I hope so. I have no idea. I mean, I, I, yeah. the, the only thing I've heard discussed are, you know, sort of proposed physical releases over the next, you know, sort of three to five years. Um, which was originally 10 to 15. And I, so I think everybody's kind of, you know, I think we'll see what happens. You know, the, the documentary's coming out later this year. There'll be a box that goes with that similar to the 1966 box of just kind of show, 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 you know, like very simple, very basic, just here are the shows. And then we'll see what the response is. And then there are lots more, and these have all been discussed, these were all tweaked in the um, Rolling Stone piece a few months ago where there's, yeah. you know, the Supper Club and 1976 and um, Time Out of Mind and, you know, yeah. some of these other, some of these other, there's some early, very, very early stuff. You know, if there's a market, they will be there. It may just be that they're limited to 30 or 50 or whatever thousand or that they become much more stylized, more bespoke, similar to the 65, 66 box, where it's very limited, but it's something you really want to have. Yeah. I'm going to ask you about Shadows in the Night and the, uh, the so-called Sinatra, you know, uh, trilogy. Yeah, sure. um, I know that you're, you're a big fan. Do you want to tell us about your feelings about them? Yeah, again, I had a lucky preview, and I think this colors the way I came to it. In other words, Shadows in the Night, I was at Dylan's office for another reason. I, I don't even remember why. It was like, oh, you know, there's this new album coming. Maybe you'll write about it. Do you want to hear a little? Nah, that's okay. I'm good. No, of course, you know, you say yes and you want to hear, you know. And so I got a few tastes. So I heard, I think that day, maybe half a dozen of the songs. And I was completely knocked out because I didn't expect it at all. I think, see, the, the difference is when everybody got it on release day, they knew it was going to be a Sinatra-themed mm -hmm. album. They knew... Mm -hmm what a couple of the tunes already that had been previewed sounded like or the snippets on Amazon. or That mm. takes away a little bit of the impact when, you know, hearing it there, first of all, it's very cool to hear it in Bob's office, but, you know, it's, you know, there's a certain cachet and you're like walking yeah. on air when you leave. But, but also <laughs> part of it is it's like hearing something in the 70s when you went down to the record store on release day or whenever you got there, whenever you heard there was a new... Bob album or John Lennon album or Neil Young album or whatever, and you took it home and you put it on and you'd never heard 
any of those songs before, and they were completely different than the album before. You know, this was a real departure in so many ways from Tempest. I remember sitting there with my mouth open and just kind of being like, you know, holy shit, this is... I mean, he sounded so good and melodic, and the band and the arrangements were so amazing that I was really taken by it on a purely artistic level. I mean, setting aside that it was Bob Dylan, setting aside that I was getting to hear it early, you know, I was really moved, emotionally moved by the performances um, and the song choices, which I thought were pretty cool um, because they weren't all on that album, the sort of household names. They weren't the hits, Mm, you know? mm. Yeah, and I listened to I Could Have Told You on the way here today. I know that's from Triplicate, but I yeah. thought, this is so powerful. This is amongst the most moving vocal deliveries he's given. Um, yeah. I'm not going to hyperbolize about all 52 songs, but there are moments. <laughs> go ahead. Oh, go <laughs> you know, ahead. I can't. I can't. Um, but that was phenomenal. You know, yeah. so, so moving. Yeah. Um, I think, too, you know, what I what I loved about it, and this is sort of jumping forward a little bit, was when he came around on tour... For the next couple of years, he did those songs, and he was so invested in them. He, You could tell he was, if you were close enough, you could really see he was enjoying them. But even if you were a little bit further away, you know, his body m- movements and, and just the kind of vigor that he was delivering them with. But also, there was such melody in his voice that, you know, a lot of times... It's not the Bob we want. I've said, I said this earlier, you know, it's not the Bob we want, it's the Bob he wants to give us. Um, yeah, sure. and, and so, you know, I'm, I make fun of the people who want, my, you know, my brother emailed me, this is about 10 years ago, and he said, you know, he, my nephew had gotten him, I think for birthday or Christmas tickets to Dylan. He's like, okay, what am I, what should I expect? <laughs> and I was like, well, don't, don't, I was like, what was the last time you saw him? And I That's think he'd seen him on the Rolling Thunder. And I said, okay, it's not going to be that, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and so, you know, you want to go in there without expectations, but of course, all mm. of us want him to be something different at certain times, even during the shows. And so I think what was so great about mm. it was for, for those moments, even though they weren't Dylan songs, he was so committed, so, you know, so totally artistically invested in delivering those songs with such sort of passion um, and power, I think, and energy. You know, I think that's really cool. That was what was so endearing to me, yeah, you, both, both I, on record li- and, and live. I've been listening to uh, to all of them because uh, we, 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 we said we'd be talking about them. And I particularly had trouble before this week with Triplicate because there was just so much. A lot of material. Uh, yeah. it, I thought about when Prince's, uh, when Emancipation finally came out, that triple album. I, or Crystal I still, Ball, right? Yeah. I, or yeah. Crystal Ball. Oh, there was just yeah. so much. How can you possibly take it in? But this week I did. And, and the thing that really got to me was hearing um, him be optimistic in these songs, through these songs. Some of them, I mean, yeah, yeah. like the best is yet to come, yeah. uh, but beautiful sentimental journey, and I thought, oh, to me that was just a like, bomb, because to hear Bob Dylan actually singing the best is yet to come yeah. is so un-Bob Dylan, <laughs> it's, so, it's awesome, actually, yeah, yeah, it is, yeah. it's got what? 
Is that what you're, wow. Mm. You know, of course there's the bleak ones and there's the heartbroken ones, but to hear him actually singing and also jaunty stuff like this, this song, uh, Braggin, Mm. is deeply obscure to me. But that's the way, funnily enough, that's the one, I don't know why, it's just so bouncy and so Mm. much fun. I played that a number of times. I think, I think this is one of the things that our, our new economy has done such a disservice to music especially, um, but film as well, where we're very, very, very focused on release day. And so mm. an, an album comes out and we all consume it right away. And we, we all, whether we're journalists or not, kind of have a hot take. And mm-hmm. we pretty quickly, whether it's great or not, move on. You know, you, you're not going back to... Egypt Station, McCartney's album from last fall now. I mean, you know, it's, you're just not mm-hmm. doing it. And mm-hmm. I think that happens even with Neil Young, Bob Dylan, you know, as much as it does with Ariana Grande. Uh, so I think the, the difficulty becomes finding time to go back to these releases. But when you do, the ones that are really good will, just like Desire or even self-portrait will give you something you missed the first time and you will get something different almost every time you listen to it. You'll focus on different songs. You'll focus on the delivery, the musicianship, the arrangements, the quality of the recording itself. I mean, one of the things that can't be forgotten is that these sound really, really, really... I mean, Al Schmidt did a fantastic job. They took full advantage of Capitol Studios. And I think that's, you know, that shouldn't kind of be forgotten. So Mm. um, there's a lot to dig into but, you know, when Triplicate came out, it was 30 songs. And you're like, yeah, well, there's been two of these before. I've already heard 20 songs. So yeah. I'm just going to listen to this. And, oh, it's more Sinatra-ish. And Ooh. got it, moving on. And I think mm-hmm. that did a disservice to the fact that there was a lot of meat there. Yep, no, I agree. I think we've got to uh, wrap it up. We've, uh, we have managed to discuss the, uh, <laughs> the Sinatra sets. <laughs> well, um, we discussed one of the albums, but yeah. <laughs> w- yeah, I mean, if, if there's anything else you'd like to say about, about what, what his current stuff is, these albums, these great American standards. Uh, you know, I, I think like, and I, you know, I said this a little bit just now, but I think it's, I, I think people who either missed them or even people who, loved them but have moved on i think as we have rediscovered parts of dylan's career that have gone past you know that we we're now rediscovering or we will the rolling thunder review and and the diehards of course you know sort of dig into these periods periodically and are like oh the early never ending tour you know that sort of first band was better than we remember mm-hmm. and you know mm-hmm. whatever it is you know we're always kind of reassessing his history, it's recent history, but I think it's worth kind of going back when you have a minute and giving these albums another chance because there's, as I said a few minutes ago, there's probably more there than you realize. Now, you've got 50 songs to, to dig into. That, that's a lot of material. And you can, you can make playlists. You know, I think Triplicate, I think what people missed maybe the first time it came out was that they were... 10 song cycles that were thematic. And yeah. so if you listen to the first 10 and the second 10 and the third 10, there are almost little mini Bob Dylan playlists 
about love and loss and temptation and all the things that, you know, Bob loves to sing about and write about. All the good stuff, yeah. Yeah, all the good (laughs) stuff, all the stuff he's best at, better than most or Mm. all from from my point of view. Um, Mm. So I think it's, you know, but then you can make your own playlist of the songs that you love or the songs that maybe you didn't love. And if you take them away from the project and listen to them individually or in groups that, you know, the things that didn't work for me, you will appreciate them anew because there's so much going on in those songs. There was one on triplicate. I listened to them all yesterday just to kind of prepare. And there was mm-hmm. one on triplicate that had a full-on horn arrangement. And I, I can't remember what it was, but I was like, wow, this is this is really great. You know, this is like, you know, it's that it's your thing. There's there's a lilt, there was a bounce, there was fun going on. You can tell that they had a good time, that Bob is totally engaged and, you know, singing his ass off too, which is really cool. Oh, he can still do that when he wants to. Um, and they were recorded live, right? I mean, totally live. Is that, that really true? A hundred percent true. I mean, because I, I remember, I think it was when Fallen Angel happened, I, I heard sort of an early version of that. You know, they were picking the takes and they were 100% live. It was, you know, there was no, and there wasn't a lot of variation because the arrangements were really set. But I think it was a more more a matter of picking the best. They weren't they weren't edited. They weren't cobbled together. It was the let it be idea of this is a band playing live with a guy singing on the floor with the band, not in a booth, but right there sitting next to everybody. Mm. So it was it was super old school, and I, and I think that's you know that's something that got lost. There's you know there's so much that gets lost when something Bob Dylan comes out. We're all so excited that there's new Bob Dylan. We we lose track of all the details, and then it takes going back to you know like we're, what like we all do or ha- I did recently with kind of time and a mind and love and theft and you know those kind of two thousands albums. You know, there's 50 of those songs that, and, and the telltale signs, um, <laughs> outtakes. And when you dig into them, you're like, wow, this is re, this is on par with anything he ever did. So well, I think, I think yeah. we can do that with, with this material. I think we, we take it for granted a lot that he's out there still doing it and, and we shouldn't. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's not take Bob for granted. Thanks for joining us, Jeff Slate. Mm, thank you, Jeff. Thank you for having me. This was really fun. Is It Rolling Bob? Talking Dylan is recorded in the Tony Perkins suite at Lip Sync Studios. Engineered by Mark Langley-Smith and produced by Robin Guise. We're on Twitter at Is It Rolling Pod. Music is by Sam Hare. Old New York City is a friendly old town from Washington Heights to Harlem on down. There's a mighty many people all milling all around. They'll kick you when you're up and knock you when you're down. <laughs>